I'm Lisa Lancer-Rose. I'm Anne Labar. And this is This Animal Life. Hey, hey. And today we're talking about cephalopods, specifically octopuses, which is, it is octopuses, not octopi, because it's based on the Greek, I believe. Yeah, the I is Latin and you can't put a Latin suffix on a Greek word. Yeah, that's it. I think you can, but you can do whatever you want. There is so much about these guys and it's so mind boggling. And even researchers say we have alien life on earth. Why don't we spend more time on that? I've always thought that. Yeah. Why are, why are we looking in outer space? How about we look in the ocean and, and the jungles? and all? Yeah. yeah. And what's weird about them is that they are just so different from us. Other intelligent animals, we can somewhat understand. And mammals, we have an easy time. And even birds, you know, we get it. We've got the similar kind of brain. We've got the same kind of wiring. We, where octopuses, check this one out. And most of the information that I'm going to be talking about, I got from the show Nature. It aired in two, 2019. Oh. It was originally called, this, this cracks me up. It was originally called Octopus in My House. Oh. And now they call it, Octopus making contact, which is just way better. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But it's season 38, episode one, if anybody wants to go look at it. And it's focused on uh, David Scheel from Alaska Pacific University, which is what piqued my interest because I went to University of Alaska Anchorage, which is right next door to APU. And he studies for the past 25 years, he's worked specifically with octopuses, specifically with the giant Pacific octopus, which is in the Pacific Ocean off Alaska. They're big, they're slow, they're huge, they're enormous. But he has also done, you know, work in Madagascar and Australia. And there's clips of that in the video when he's talking about other types. But anyway, he talks about the evolution and our paths separated basically at the flatworm. Yes. Our most common ancestor is the flatworm. So they developed. That's like 200,000 years ago. It's 600,000. 600,000 years ago. I'm excited to hear all this because when I did my research, I looked for what's the same. Yes. Well, that's what he wanted to see what was the same. And I just have a yes. couple of things I'm going to mention. So we'll talk about um, convergent evolution. Yes. And we'll, we'll diverge. And then when I tell my story and a little bit of research that I did, it'll, it'll come together. Yes. Well, that's why I thought I'd start what he did, what this video is about. It's, it's rather short. It's under an hour. Again, he knows the differences. He wanted to know the similarities. Mm. So what he did was he brought an octopus into the house and he's got this huge saltwater aquarium. Wow. They show it, setting it up and everything. It's it's that's expensive. Oh, it's, I'm, I I think he's got an expense account. He went with, he didn't go with the giant Pacific. (laughs) He brought home, he wanted a smaller active daytime one, warm water. So he brought home the octopus Sanaya, which just means day octopus and they're warm water. They're active during the day. They're not giants. They're probably fit in both your hands. That's a good size. You know, with the legs spilling over. So he put it in the living room, basically, so they would be interacting with her all the time. 
and it would it would become part of the family. Wow. It was him and his daughter. So his daughter's home a lot. She's really taking care of it quite a bit and interacting with it quite a bit. They named they named her Heidi, <laughs> but it's not Heidi like cowbell in the Alps, Heidi. When they first brought her home, of course, she was very, very young, little baby. And she likes to hide. Yes, I was. I, I thought I knew where that was. So going. that was it. Yes. But once she warmed up, she didn't hide. I mean, this girl comes home from school and that thing is like rushes up to greet her kind yes, of thing. Yes, they it's recognize like people. Putting the tentacles out and wanting to play. And oh, my God. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> so you have video of this, too? Yes, this is this is in the video. OK, we'll share that link. Yes. Oh, my God. It's so good. The thing about it is, is it's so popular and it's so good that PBS has locked it up. What? You cannot get this thing on PBS documentary streaming if you, you subscribe to that. The only way I could get it was to donate to my local PBS station oh. for the entire year. <laughs> and... That's a worthy then cause. I have access to it. That's a worthy cause. And um, so much more, I'm sure. And so much more. Yes, but you know. Yes, so worth it. First time I saw it, I again I had to go through all these hoops. So, you know, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> it took me like an hour to figure out how to sign on and see it on TV and all this other stuff. Anyway, it really becomes part of the family. She becomes part of the family. Just to give you some rundown, a lot of this is kind of on the timeline. I tried to sort things through. So this may bounce around for a little while. But basically, she uses tools, she plays, reach for people. And this is where I wanted to talk a little bit about Soul of the Octopus, the book. And who's the author? You know, the author is I Montgomery. It's a must read. Oh, it is a must read. She talks about how there was like one research assistant or grad student or something that the octopus they were working with didn't like. And the minute this dude would walk into the lab, she would squirt water across the room and just just douse him. Yeah. <laughs> so they use water as a tool. Yes. Oh, they, they use do. it to they, dig. They, right. Um, so it's like a shovel or sandblaster. And and they use it to play, don't they? Yes. And they will squirt around. They did one experiment but he also does it he shows Heidi doing this as well he gets a pill bottle a little prescription pill bottle fills it almost full of water so that it'll float just below the surface kind of thing little air bubble okay yeah and what she did and what other octopuses do is they'll squirt it so it will float away but because of the um and it'll hang out near the filter okay and because of the filter it'll come back to them so they squirt it away. It comes back. They squirt. It's a playing catch. Yes. I love it. And they do squirt like the, the girl, his daughter who plays with her. I mean, it will hang on her for half an hour. Wow. And then squirt water up her sleeve. But obviously it just seems like it seems like mm-hmm. um, she likes this young girl very, very much. And they talk about personality and, okay. and they will assign personality. They see different personalities. And she says that, you know, Heidi's just a troublemaker. She just really. <laughs> but she also watches TV. I've heard that. That's something I came across. Yes. Cuttlefish will respond to a video, a video of another cuttlefish changing color and signaling. 
their eyes. That's another example of convergent. I mean, that seems to be the most common uh, is their eyes are similar. They don't see color. Right. As far as we know. Surprisingly for a creature that is so good at camouflage. Oh my God. Yes. Yeah. But uh, their eyes are similar to ours. And so they can see images on a television across the room from inside their tank. And they also kind of play, I call it hide and seek or peekaboo. They never call it peekaboo on this video or anything I've read, but (laughs) that's what it looks like. Like they do this with divers. They'll like hide behind a rock and then like peek out and look at them. And then they go back and then they peek out. That little eye bump. Yeah, little eye bump comes out. So these are the differences. There's nothing about them that is similar in the way that it evolved. We evolved from the same beast, the same eyes, because there were no, there were maybe eye dots on the flatworm before we separated. Right. Well, and a most significant difference among several would be that we have a skeleton. Right. Well, there's even more. They have three hearts. Oh. Blue blood. What? No skeleton. They are a mollusk. Their gut runs through their brain. Stop. They have a poison beak. No other animal has evolved this way. They have a totally separate track of evolution. They also have a diffuse brain, right? Yes. Oh, my God. Their brain goes through all of their legs. So they kind of have a separate brain. It's not like our nervous system. And this is what makes it hard to imagine being an octopus. It's sort of like having separate brains in each arm. However, my guess is it's not a different person. It's not eight different consciousness, but they yes. sense. And they separately. can make decisions of, of, yes. of a rudimentary sort. Yes. I think there is a central brain yes. that maybe sorts all this out, but they can do things without, it's almost like alien, think alien hand syndrome. They're doing their own thing over here. Oh, and they can grow back. But you'll Maybe. talk about I that actually I hadn't planned to, but I can. Oh, okay. Well, basically, if one of their legs gets mangled or cut off, if they survive, because, you know, that's a serious injury, it will grow yes, back. Yes, with its brain, which made me think that brain is regenerating. And yes, I mean, I know they, they talk now about neuroplasticity and that we know that. Right. But yeah, come on. <laughs> You know, I was trying to get in the head of the octopus Mm -hmm. a little bit. And the only way I can think of it is sort of if you put yourself in place of, if you try to imagine a universal consciousness, if that makes any sense. Oh, like an oversoul. Only just over your body. Right. I don't know. I don't know. That's as far as I could get with it because it is completely, completely alien. I tried to imagine what it would be like to, I, I'm with you. Yeah. We, we have to have a Zen moment. <laughs> I, I think so. I mean, what is, what is it? Um, what's the drug? DMT? Whatever the, the God drug is. <laughs> I don't know. It's a type of acid, I think. Again, what's different with their intelligence is their model of intelligence does not fit our model of intelligence. And what I mean by that is that most intelligent animals have 
a learning period. Oh, yes. They are cared for, mm-hmm. and even birds, they are cared for, they are raised, they are reared. There is some teaching going on. Most very intelligent, what we consider higher intelligent animals, are social. And that's what is distinctive about intelligence. It is social. You learn from one another, all kinds of examples, obviously, throughout the animal kingdom. And they protect you while you're learning. Right. So you can make mistakes and learn from your mistakes. Yes. Without necessarily paying for your life, with your life. Yes, exactly. And these things, when they're born, octopuses and all cephalopods are itty bitty 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 itty bitty i mean itty bitty (laughs) they are completely precocial from the moment they hatch okay they are hardwired predators they will hunt immediately even things bigger than them they instantly the minute they hatch they start constructing whatever they can find they construct a den whatever they can find there's a baby bobtail squid will attach grains of sand to its body with okay. a mucus so it can hide. Most use mm-hmm. shells or whatever they can find, and they immediately Because hide. they're a mollusk without a shell. Right. So they have to borrow them. They have yes. to borrow protection, armor. It's not like they just hide. Right. They construct a shelter immediately. And they're modifying their environment. Right. So they are not raised. They are not reared. They can mm-hmm. learn. They do trial and error. They have memories. They have recognition. They only live about a year. Depending on the species. Yeah. Some of them live a little longer, maybe two years, but they don't live long. I wonder if the big cold water ones, they may live pretty long. So anywhere, uh, some six months, they only live six months, and then some live up to five years. Okay. I was going to say, I think the bigger ones would probably, yeah, have, need that longer time to literally grow. You know, and they're escape masters and they they can walk across land to search for prey. <laughs> they will come out of the water. Now, they're not breathing. They're basically holding oh, their wow. breath. So <laughs> there's pools, if the, you know, little ones. They'll come out and they'll go to the next pool looking for a crab. Mm-hmm. And they are escape masters. Aquariums have the worst time keeping them in the tank because it's a puzzle to be solved and they get the stupid thing open. And there's even, uh, Dave Shield talks about <laughs> There's stories of them climbing out of the aquarium if someone has one in their house. climb Or even, I would think, bigger aquariums, I think there's stories, where they climb out of their tank and then go eat everything I'm going to talk about tank. that as a okay. legend. Yes, as a legend. He said he has no doubt that that happens. They show an octopus going into the goldfish bowl. Oh, so they had video of it happening. Yeah, and I think they set it up. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. He says he has no doubt that that happens. Of course that happens. Yes. But he doubts very much that they can get themselves home. Oh. And I know a little bit about that. When I lived in Alaska, we just we would drive. I mean, the distances are ridiculous. We drove eight hours to Valdez and then came home, which is just, I don't know what we were doing. What, in one day? In one day. Like, oh, let's go to Valdez. Yeah, it's not like going to Scranton from Philadelphia, <laughs> you know. So we go to Valdez and they had like the nature center, the visitor's nature center, and they had a little octopus and he was talking about this and they had gone through a couple and he said, oh, the poor bastard. He just crawled out. I come in, they'd be in the wastebasket and that would be the end of it. Dry out and die overnight. (laughs) Poor things. So where all of that's kind of going is just to get your head around one really really how intelligent they are and they can taste 
through That's their right. tentacles or through their suckers. Yes. They can also sense light through their skin, which is how they, oh. how they camouflage. They're not seeing the light. Right. Or the colors. They're sensing them and matching them. The one thing that I didn't talk about was the tasting. Okay. The females have estrogen. And so David Shield thinks, can she taste the estrogen in his daughter's arm? Oh, I th Simon Montgomery asks about that. Too. Right. And there, Simon Montgomery gives the example of, I believe, of a woman, because they would stick their arms in and play with them and, you know, yes. their arms are freezing. But of one woman who came in for the experience who was a heavy smoker <gasps> and the octopus touched her and just phew, ran away. Like wow. let go immediately and took off. Ooh, I hope she quit smoking right then. And I there. would, I would hope so too. And she said it had to be the nicotine. Like she could taste it in the octopus could taste it in the skin and just was like, no. Wow. The other thing I wanted to mention was the fact that they're not social. Kind of come back to that again. That they're solitary. Yes. However, in 2009. A researcher, diver, came upon kind of a bay not too far off the Sydney Harbor. Octopolis is what they nickname it because yes. there are just shells everywhere and there's up to a dozen. And there octopuses. are no predators. It's a safe place for them. So they... It's safe. And I think there's a lot of food. So in some ways, they've been maybe forced together. There's no other example that they have found of them being together there's some evidence they put cameras down for them gopros basically to film them and of course one will grab one camera and so you yes they always play with the cameras but seems like they signal to one another and it's kind of like what we were saying about sharks it looks like some are friends they hang out together they do and they uh they have a hierarchy yeah the best one, it's just the funny clips. Gotta go watch the viral videos. It looks like may not be, but there were two big ones sitting side by side. The one grabbed the small one and spit it like, get the hell out of here. But then they reach up. The two of them are sitting next to each other. They reach up with a tentacle and basically high five. No. Yes. And it's just, that's what it looks like. <laughs> Touch tentacles. Crazy. And then there's, there's many examples of them punching fish. Yes. And they throw rocks. Yeah. They'll throw rocks. We all know that they're smart just because, you know, we yeah. have heard and we've seen them make things carry a coconut shell around and then putting it back together and then taking it apart. They hide in it and then he'll take it apart and he'll take it with him. <laughs> yes. Which is planning ahead. Yes. They're going someplace where there won't be shelter. So they bring some with. <laughs> exactly. Packing a bag. <laughs> I love it so much. But that's really all I had. That's a lot. It's yeah, wonderful. It is and a it, lot. It's, um, I'm glad to know that, uh, that that we've shared all that information before we have a look at this story. That's what that I'm going to try to tell. Because our goal is often to enter the Umwelt, right? Right. So I, I'm going to begin by recommending some books. We've talked already about The Soul of an Octopus by Cy Montgomery. There's a book called Other Minds, The Octopus, the Sea, and the Deep Origins of Consciousness by Peter I Godfrey. I don't think I've read that one. Um, I have not read that either, but I heard an interview with him on the podcast called Talking Animals. Mm. I think it's out of Yale University. I've listened to most of it now. Uh, this is episode two. So I had listened to it before. And when we decided to do octopuses, I went and listened to it again. 
there's a, a TV station online called Octob- Octolab TV. Oh, it's, let me inter- let me introduce do, do. you for a second. I am on. I am a member of Octonation on Facebook. I saw that. Yes, and and I have been for a while. And it's basically just videos. So if you're looking to look at octopuses, Octonation on it never Facebook, ends. Never and ends. No, and Octolab is a series of videos of octopus experiments. So they'll give an octopus a mirror. They have an octopus reacting to a wig and they take suggestions online. So if you can, you know, watch a bunch of this stuff and then you think, I wonder what would happen if, well, just suggest it to Octolab and maybe they will show your suggestion. They'll put it into play. There's another book called, oh, is this a book or is it an article? Octopuses at Work and Play. This is Dr. Jennifer Mather um, and she is an expert in cephalopod cognition. Ooh. And we're going to talk more about Jennifer Mather. I, 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 you can tell by this conversation so far, when you go looking for a story about an octopus, you will get overwhelmed. I never know where I'm going to find my story for you, Anne. And it's got to be a good story, you know. So I always have that stress. So <laughs> where am I going to find my story? What's my story going to be? I'm in suspense just looking for the story. I could not find a story in that I was inundated by anecdotes. Right. Uh, And that's not a story. And they're all marveling about octopus intelligence. I thought, what am I going to do? Am I going to talk for 15, 20 minutes and tell you 15 or 20 stories, uh, anecdotes? I didn't want to do that, especially because it's so much more fun to watch them. And I came away with a general impression of the nature of these videos or these little anecdotes that I saw. It's as if the human race has discovered that octopuses are just like precocious and spirited children with eight legs. <gasps> yes. <laughs> they have intelligence. Perfect. Yes. They have drive. They have charm. They're ornery. They're always causing trouble. And in that, it kind of reminds me of parrot videos or parrot stories. One of my favorite movies of all times was Jurassic Park. Jurassic Park changed my life. (laughs) One of the things that's so compelling about Jurassic Park is you and the humans in the park, or the actors, uh, you are uh, realizing together that dinosaurs aren't dimwits. That's that the, the the little uh oh flurry of you know holy shit right. Um, sometimes it's charming. Uh, hey, they're just like dogs, you know. They chase yeah. a stick, and then other times it's like it wants to kill me, and it, and it's going to outsmart me. Yeah, that's part of the thrill of Jurassic Park, and it's the same kind of thrill that I'm recognizing in octopus anecdotes. So uh, as we were saying, an octopus has a just a heartbreakingly short lifespan. Yeah. And it's also stunning because of how intelligent they are to think that, as you said, they they hatch and they're already that precocious. Some birds hatch and they can walk already. A, a horse, yeah. a foal drops and, and it gets up right away, yeah. you know, and we marvel about that. That's nothing. <laughs> compared oh, to nothing compared. No. An octopus. So humans are just so impressed. We're surprised and impressed, which maybe should be, at this point, we, it should be a little insulting that we're impressed yeah. by this because we've yeah, really. known this for a, a, <laughs> at least, what, 20 years or so. Uh, and I guess part of the fascination that we have is because they look so different. Well, that's um, it. Yes. The octopuses are very definition of an alien. In fact, we mentioned Calvin and Hobbes before. The aliens look like uh, a giant mollusk or a, a cephalopod. 
you know, they have more than one leg. That's, that's just like our default alien. Right. In, um, I never can remember the name, the Ted Chang story that became. Yes. Uh, it's not contact. No, nope, it starts with a conversation. It, uh, arrival. Yeah. Yeah. They're yeah. like, yeah. Yeah, they are. That's just our go-to. We'll, we'll never connect. We'll never find common ground because we only have four limbs. <laughs> so. Yeah. so they can escape a tank and you'll find thousands of stories, uh, many of them very sad, <laughs> about <laughs> an octopus that's trying to escape. There's a, one with a happy ending is um, Sid the Octopus. All you have to do is um, Google Sid the Octopus, S-I-D, and you'll find uh, newspaper articles and videos of Sid the Octopus. He was about the age where he would be ready to mate. He's just try, <laughs> trying to get out to sea. So they finally put him in a bucket and take him out to sea so he oh. can go do what he needs to do. <laughs> there are, there's video of some escaping in the making contact video of some escaping from like a boat and getting back oh. to sea and going through tubes and going like, I think yes. an aquarium where one escaped and went through like some tube or heating fan or something. Anyway. Yes. They the sense <laughs> where uh, the, in the water's coming in. Yeah. And, yeah. And they'll go through there and they dismantle everything. That's just how they're like, like a parrot. They just take right. everything apart. One of the first stories I ever heard about an octopus, like, wow, they're really smart. We thought they were stupid, but was of an octopus. This is what I remember. There was a laboratory. There were rows of tanks and fish were disappearing in a tank. Yeah. yeah. And no one could figure out what is happening to these fish because their bodies just vanish. And so they put a camera in. And after the last technician leaves, the octopus slips out <laughs> of the tank, climbs down the wall, walks on all eight legs across the floor and climbs up the other side. Because they have the suckers, which are like, yeah. uh, each sucker is like 30 pounds of pressure and they have hundreds of suckers. So that is a fearsome force. And yes. they climb up the side. That's another alien thing. We can't climb up the wall. Mr. Spider-Man. And goes in the tank, has a hell of a time enjoying the fish, and then climbs out before dawn, before the handlers <laughs> come back. It sneaks across the floor and back in the tank. And um, now they know. What I found when I went looking for that story is that that story is everywhere. And the, the details change. Uh, and then I found articles about how that must be an urban legend because oh. those stories are not verified. And it's the same fundamental story, but the details change. Therefore, it must not be true. I mean, that's how you oh. identify a lie is that the details keep changing, right? right? So I found a whole article saying that it was an urban legend. I'll see if I can find it again and share it with you, but you'll find it if you look for it. So there are all these unverified versions floating around with different details. And I dug into it. I'm like, is this an urban legend? Because it kind of bugged me because I had fallen for it, right? Oh, yeah. um, and I realized looking at the arguments that it was an urban legend and then finding examples of the story that uh, I came to the same conclusion that you did, that it is not a highly embellished and widely repeated single story. It is a common incident. Yeah. And after I studied octopuses a little bit, I realized why it would be a common incident. It's because they are largely nocturnal. Yes. And they are so vulnerable and their number one, the number one purpose of their intelligence is to, uh, is stealth. Yes. Is, is to remain invisible. Mm -hmm. So they evade predators by stealth and they go out hunting at night. Yes. And we go to bed. We leave the lab, <laughs> right? 
Also, if you're in there moving around and talking, making noise and all, they're going to hide unless they know you and trust you, which takes a right. long time because they're they're very fearful uh, creatures. So, and they return, they have a den and they return to the den. And your guy said it would be hard for them to return to the den, but it probably depends on the circumstances. Well, I think maybe like the poor one in Valdez, it fell into the garbage can. You know, it really did get someplace that was, it should be able to climb out, but you never know. Like it, right? they get someplace that just whatever. Whoops. Yes. (laughs) Uh Uh-oh. So, um, but often, especially if it's a case where there's fish disappearing Day after day, you come in and there's a fish gone. There is an article about Sid the octopus that in the course of telling you his story, uh, and he was a famous horny escape artist, uh, (laughs) in that article, which I will share, there are two separate credible accounts of this behavior that we're talking about. Um, The article's called Legging It. (laughs) Evasive octopus who has has been allowed to look for love. So... (laughs) And I'm thinking if um, if octopuses are notorious for watching television, pet octopuses are notorious yeah. for watching television, um, why wouldn't an octopus in a lab be watching what's going on in yes. other tanks? Absolutely. And, and if they're famous escape artists and problem solvers and stealth hunters, why wouldn't they climb out at night, leave the den as they do in the wild and come back yeah. in the morning? Anyway, that's that's my theory. So any one of these stories, it takes like a minute, right? And I was looking for a narrative for you, a, a really good story, Anne, to tell you, and I couldn't find one. Uh, so the best narrative right now is, of course, the 2021 Academy Award winning documentary, My Octopus Teacher. Which Craig is the Foster. worst title. Honestly. It is the worst title. I'm so glad you said that. But like, <laughs> if there's something about an octopus, I will watch it. So I came across it and I'm like, oh, what a horrible, horrible title. But I'm watching this. And I you told fell me love. about it. I told you about it. I told everybody about it. <laughs> and then people would watch it and then come back to me and say, oh, have you seen? I'm like, I'm the one who told you about it. So, <laughs> and That's then it, there was a little blurb about it winning the Academy Award and them saying, nobody saw this coming. And it was just word of mouth. Like people saw this and completely entranced by it and told everybody. Yes. And forgave it for the title. Yes. <sighs> Oh, it just get a knot in my stomach about that title. I don't know why. It's so hokey. But you know, you saw it. I saw it. Everybody just saw it. It just won the Academy Award like days ago, right? Yeah. Time of this recording, it was just days ago. (laughs) So, um, and it's on Netflix. I yeah. So it's easy to watch. Yeah. So I didn't want to tell that story. I wanted. I want you to go see it. Yes. Oh yes. yes. So I was really stuck for a story. (laughs) That's the story I wanted to tell, but I don't want to tell you a story you already know. And then I thought, what if I can, I can't tell the whole story of that movie. It's what an hour and a half long documentary. You'd be Um, like the kid on the plane describing E.T. to the guy next to him for three hours. You don't (laughs) want to do that. (laughs) So I thought, well, why don't I educate myself uh, about things peripheral to this and see if I can uh, take uh, an anecdote from that narrative study i don't know if i'm making any sense let me try i'm doing okay okay so i decided to tell you the story about the movie itself and then um about some of the key players because i had questions so and and i'll tell you some of the key players behind the film including the octopus herself uh which we just learned a lot about octopuses and then i'm going to focus on one scene in particular because what i realized is there's one scene in that movie Actually, the movie has lots of scenes, <laughs> right? But, but there's one scene in particular that shows you all of the essence of an octopus. Oh, 
So I'm going to try to lead you into that. Okay. And hopefully those of you who have seen the movie will enjoy remembering that scene and, and look at it afresh with this information that you've just picked up from us. And if you haven't seen it, you'll be even more fascinated. That was my goal and make you go see it or go watch it again. Okay. Now that you know all this, because I just watched it again now that I know all this and it was a different movie for me. Okay. So first let's talk about Craig Foster. My octopus teacher is actually a love story. I'm sorry. It's not about a a pupil and an educator. It's, It's about a man in love with an octopus. It really, really is. There are some scenes in this movie. Let's be frank. Those of you who've seen it before you with me, uh, it was a little disturbing, but in a, in a wonderful way, like, I don't know, like you couldn't blame him, but, uh, you know, he, he was, He's a little on the edge, which is okay. You really don't have a story necessarily unless you have somebody who's just going off the deep end in one way or another. Like that's where the suspense comes from. And you're worried about him as much as you're worried about her. So he is a South African documentary filmmaker. The movie begins with him saying, you know, I... I was having a really rough time and I decided to go diving in this frigid, dangerous water every single day for an entire year. And you're like, wait, stop. <laughs> but they just, they just plow ahead. Right. So I, I remember thinking, what is wrong with you? Like what happened to you? First thing Carl said is how does his wife feel about this? Yes. <laughs> he has a wife and he has a child and, and where the heck are they? Um, yeah. And why are you doing this? I, yeah. So I thought I would answer that question. Uh, but I don't want to go into it too much. And I, I understand now why why they sort of blew past all that. So I'm going to answer some of those questions as best I could. Okay. So he grew up in Cape Town, right on False Bay. And he started diving at three years old. Oh, my God. Yes. He shows you at the beginning of the movie when he's blowing past his backstory that his family has a cabin that is below the flood line on that bay. And they show you a a few seconds of footage of a storm just flooding that. And you might've missed it because you're, the beginning is a little disorienting. You're, you know, you're like, wait, what, what, what? And then, and then it moves on. I know as uh, someone who's married to a South African and who's gone to South Africa to visit the family, it is not that uncommon for white South Africans to own fabulous homes on the water (laughs) and multiple homes, right? It might sound a little out of the ordinary to us Americans, but I've been in those houses. Yeah, that, that's just an ordinary white folk house. <laughs> there. So he started diving. That's the weird thing. It's not the house that's weird. It's the that he was diving in that water. And he shows you a little bit about how dangerous that water is. So he when he grew up, he and his brother, he doesn't mention his brother, Damon, in in this, but he and his brother uh, are filmmakers together. They moved from that aquatic environment to the Kalahari Desert. And they made, he mentions one film, um, My Hunter's Heart, but they've actually made several there. And uh, then they went on to make at least two movies with a guy named Horrocks, Roger Horrocks. I love that name, Roger Horrocks, making movies about crocodiles is one of the most dangerous uh, animals. They've made at least two films, The Foster Boys did. He mentions My Hunter's Heart, and he draws on uh, what he learned in the Kalahari is sort of how he was able to have this extraordinary relationship with the octopus. So he had to go to the desert and learn tracking. Oh, yeah. My Hunter's Heart is about this ancient shamanic culture. Their traditional way of life is threatened as is 
the way of life of everything on this planet right now. And uh, the film follows these young guys uh, in the clan. They're trying to recapture some of the knowledge and skills of their ancestors. And so the foster brothers go along with them and learn tracking. So that's in a desert. And at one point in the film, he loses, he scares the octopus. He was just starting to win her trust and he scares her. I think the lens falls from his camera. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it spooks her and then he can't find her. He's in the, a kelp forest. Um, and so there's this wonderful scene where you see him making a map of, of the kelp forest. But we'll get there in a second. So his time with trackers in the desert prepared him for his underwater adventure. Sometime around 2014, Craig made a second movie with Damon and Roger Horrocks about the crocodiles. And he had some kind of a breakdown. He says he was overworked. I, I listened to interviews with him. I listened to interviews with people who knew him. And they all you know, say he was depression is one word that a breakdown crisis. He says he never wanted to make another film again. I looked to see if he made another film with his brother because now, now it was just gossiping, I mean, <laughs> like looking for dirt. I don't know. But I was like, did he have a falling out with his brother, I guess? is like, like what could wound him so deeply, you know, that he would do this? That's, it was compassion for him, really, not, it was nothing lurid. I was just like, what could hurt him so much? That's how the movie begins. This man was so deeply wounded. Yes. Yes. So, I don't know. Oh, you don't know. I I have not seen that. He uh, his brother Damon was not part of this film. Okay, as from as far as I know, and I don't know what happened to him, and that's fine. I I I, I don't need to know. So what he does is, uh, you know, he says his life had lost all meaning, or his work had lost all meaning. So he goes home, and home is False Bay. Oh, okay. He makes this spiritual commitment to swim to free dive. Every day for a full year. Yeah. That's fine, except this water is really cold. And he wants to do it without a wetsuit because, I guess because he spent all this time with the trackers in the Kalahari. They were so attuned with their environment. Okay. You know, they're they're wearing nothing but a loincloth, you know? <laughs> like, they're feeling the wind on their skin all the time. And so he wants to feel the water on his skin all the time. So he dives without a tank and without a wetsuit. That water is not that deep. I was wondering about All right, that. So that kelp forest, uh, I was watching the second time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, if you're looking for that kind of stuff, you see that, um, he doesn't say how deep it is, but like the, the one scene I'm going to talk to you about involves a shark. It's not the, it's not the really upsetting <laughs> scene um, with the shark. He has to come up for air at a pivotal moment. And uh, it, it doesn't really take that long to come up for air. So anyway, um, there's an interview that we'll give you the link. He's on Fresh Air, NPR, and he, and he talks about this, about diving uh, without a tank and uh, without a wetsuit. And not only does he want to feel the movement of the water and the diff fluctuations in temperature in this environment on his skin, he says the cold stress releases endorphins and makes you feel more alert and alive. He actually used the phrase, it upgrades the brain. And incidentally, he has a point. Yeah, I found out that he required diving without a wetsuit or a tank of all the filmmakers. Oh, <laughs> nasty. Because when uh, they, they wanted to go down to get more footage, you know, to fill out the narrative. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And he's like, okay, but you got to do it on my terms. He's a purist. <laughs> so, yeah. Anyway. 
he also says in this interview that being unencumbered by diving equipment uh, and having that skin to water contact helped him ponder the amphibious nature of the human animal. Mm -hmm. And uh, incidentally, he has been diving every day for the last nine years. So this film, the footage that we're seeing, the, the narrative of the octopus happened like nine or 10 years ago. I'm not quite sure. Oh my God. Yeah, that year with the octopus was within the first year of this spiritual quest that he went on. Oh, okay. And she only, her lifespan was one year. Yeah. Yeah. So since then, he's continued to dive. He says, uh, you feel like you're flying in the water. After you habituate, you start craving it. Anyway, so during that first year, because octopuses are territorial and he is diving in this small forest right by his house, uh, he is in her territory every single day. During this time, he did not get to know one particular octopus. Um, right. He got to know a, a number of them, uh, but he got to know her best. He filmed a lot of other creatures during that year, and he discovered eight new species of shrimp. Oh, wow. Well, that's significant. Yeah, and his new passion, I guess he was looking for a new passion, and it became this kelp forest. So he, he founded the Sea Change Project. We're going to put a link to that on our website. And he had scads of video of all kinds of things about this. So he didn't know if he had an, he even wanted to do another documentary. Sure. But when he, when he felt like he did, it, he wanted to, his, his mission was to preserve the kelp forest in general. And uh, Sea Change Project involves, and the movie ends with this, with the Sea Change Project. He now goes diving with other people. There are all these other people who, who dive every day. That's right. Yeah. And who have become committed to the preservation of this forest, this underwater forest. And one of them is a fellow documentarian named Pippa Ehrlich. And uh, she had been diving with him for about six months before he even mentioned thinking about doing a documentary. And he didn't know what it was going to be. I'm not quite sure, but I think she, it might have been her idea to focus on the one individual octopus that he, anyway, there's an interview with her. It's called Hot Docs. Okay. 2020, women directors. And uh, she is one of the fellow uh, directors of My Octopus Teacher. Yes. He invited her to work with him and he showed her the treatment that he had and he played her some of the footage. Yeah. And she was just sold right there. She said it, uh, it was the first time, as far as she knew, that a wild marine animal had been documented to this extent. Which is why it's so fascinating. Because it was daily contact. And much of the behavior that maybe he didn't realize how extraordinary it was because it was something he lived with every day and continued to every day. It had never been captured before that kind of quotidian <laughs> video. So she said, I had to learn to find an animal who's, uh, which she started looking for octopuses. She had to learn to find animals whose entire evolutionary strategy is being invisible. Okay. So she said, what she thinks is powerful about the film is the fact that there's this big South African guy who's telling a deeply intimate story. That deep intimacy, that's, that's, I know, that's what kind of what I want to talk about. But anyway, it, uh, he takes you uh, into this fragile creature's world. It's a modified snail. It's a snail without a shell. Sure. He transforms her from an underwater alien to a protagonist ah. that we deeply care about and we relate to. Oh, absolutely. And it's that relating to that I want to talk about. So unlike any other octopus story that you're ever going to encounter online, this is the most famous and most intimately portrayed. Yes. And interestingly enough, every other octopus that you will find online, most of them, you know, like Sid, they all have names. 
And uh, they just, the filmmakers decided not to name her. And I think part of why they didn't name her was because they brought Dr. Jennifer Mather on board. I mentioned her before. She is the octopus psychologist. Very cool. <laughs> they brought her on board because they wanted to, they wanted to make sure they had the umwelt mm. of the octopus, right? So she helped them understand that an octopus is just a snail without a shell. Right. And it's a very, very intelligent creature that's very vulnerable. Because of its vulnerability, it has had to be extremely intelligent. So she said, the octopus's main experience of the world is the tension between fear and curiosity. Okay. You remember I said earlier that like my impression of octopuses online, humans reacting to octopuses online is, is this wonder that we have when we seem to recognize a precocious child sure. in the octopus. And children of a certain age, I mean, we all have tension between fear and curiosity, but there is a, a, a learning stage in children that is that push-pull of uh, fear and curiosity, like hanging on their parents' knee and then wanting to venture out and then running back. Sure. Anyway, there's an article, I'll put a link to it, uh, why my octopus teacher directors brought in an octopus psychologist for their documentary. Yeah. So let me, I keep saying umwelt and I, I just, let me define it here. It's just the surrounding world or environment as an, as a creature, any creature, human, otherwise perceives it. So the umwelt is not how we perceive the octopus perceiving. It is the umwelt is as the octopus perceives it with all their peculiar senses and all their suckers and their light sensing skin <laughs> and their own needs and experiences, their own episodic memory. It's a lot like Nagel's famous 1974 essay, What Is It Like to Be a Bat? That famous question. Uh, he argues that we can't know. Uh, but of course, the human animal wants to know. And I think Jennifer Mather gets us pretty close. Okay, there's an article in Animal Sentience called, it's a 2019 article, What is in an Octopus's Mind? So I decided to read that article and then watch My Octopus Teacher. Oh, yeah. I like that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So she says that their situation as completely vulnerable mollusks requires that they be endowed with extraordinary flexible problem-solving strategies enabling them to survive by their wits in a challenging and variable environment. Every word of that is very well chosen for this. Um, she says their brain-body ratio is actually higher than most vertebrates. Yeah. Yes. I found other people saying that was not true. You know? Uh, she says... It's all in how you measure it. Yes. And they're not vertebrates, but they have a higher brain-body ratio. Uh, Three-fifths of their neurons are in their arms. And here's the thing about that. Uh, we get distracted by all those legs, right? But the truth is, uh, we aren't. We assume that we exist. Our consciousness exists in our brain pan. You know that we're we're protected in this shell that we carry around. Yes. But we actually have about. I saw 100 million in some places, and I saw 500 million in other places. I didn't check which is true. So, you guys go <laughs> see if you can figure that out. But. We have something called a second brain in our gut. It's the enteric nervous system. Really? Yeah. So we have brain cells in our gut. We have the expression, listen to your gut, or what's your gut telling you, right? True. Anxiety and stress affect our GI tract. Right. Um, so other cultures have thought that the locus of our consciousness is in our heart. Okay. Or in our gut too. So yes, maybe that's not such an alien notion. 
also the cephalopod brain creates short-term and long-term memory, as we've mentioned before. Their memory is episodic. If you read this article, it'll give you links to other articles where people have studied that and determined those things. Yes. Yeah. They are capable of imagination, causal reasoning, flexible problem solving, and prospection, which is planning for the future, very much on the order of mammals and birds. Therefore, we have convergent evolution. Right. Uh, like you said, we, we was the last common ancestor was the flatworm <laughs> that became everything else, right? Or a lot of other things. So, oh, this guy... Oh, that I, uh, Peter Godfrey Smith. He says when you talk about the evolution of the chain of being, you know, we still we are still so trapped into that limited thinking that there's a hierarchy of intelligence, right? And he says it's more like a tree, and so think of that flatworm as a branching point. And we're at the top of the tree only because we're still alive, or, you know, as a, as a species, we still exist. And the octopus is also at the top of the tree on a different branch in its world. So Jennifer Mather breaks down octopus behavior into three fundamental responses to perpetual, this perpetual conflict between curiosity and fear. Okay. So I distilled each of those main concerns of the octopus umbel. Like it's, we've talked about all the ways it's different, all the ways it senses. Now, these are three motivations or preoccupations, I guess, that the octopus has. So as we try to think, what is it like to be an octopus? These are things to consider. One is, what can I do with this object? And I loved you telling us about how uh, when they're first born, the first thing they do is go looking for stuff to stick on their bodies to protect them or something to crawl into. People find them in trash, right? Sure. Yeah. So they are imbued with a playful, exploratory character. They're Heidi, right? I, did you come across references to scientists who are trying to study octopus cognition or problem solving or whatever? And um, so they put things in the tank for octopuses and like should try to train them. And they have trained them to do certain behaviors. But the octopuses almost never do what the scientists want them to do with the objects because they are, they have such creative thinking. They, they will play with and dismantle the objects. And the problem is they try to use treats like food to motivate them to do certain things. But playing with and dismantling objects is more rewarding to octopuses than food is. So putting them in a classic laboratory situation and asking them to manipulate an object in a certain way for a food reward is almost impossible. So the second motivating factor or concern of the octopus is fear, the assumption that everyone is out to get me. And that's part of why My Octopus Teacher is such an extraordinary film, because uh, he was able to tame her in a sense or win her trust. So it's difficult. You mentioned them being solitary. I I can't remember where it was. Uh, somebody talked about octopuses being antisocial, but the more I thought about it, and you know, after you watch the film, that it's not antisocial. And there's octopolis, and you use the word solitary, and I think that's probably more accurate. Yes, I think so too. Just in tone, you know, antisocial means you hate others, and and solitary means you know you accept that you're on your own in this world. And like you said, there is no sheltered juvenile period with parents educating you. There's no support from a community to protect you and teach you, learn by trial and error. Uh, there's no comfort. There's no communication about threat. 
from others. Like, you know, birds are so good at that. Squirrels uh, will announce that there's a threat, right? So an octopus succeeds in reaching maturity and breeding, but more often it fails. But if it reaches maturity and breeding, it has done so entirely on its own decision-making capacity, uh, you know, by its own wit. And the last thing is flexibility notion that if at first you don't succeed, try again a different way. There, uh, That exploration, what can I do with this object, that is creative thinking. They are just constantly learning all the different applications for uh, a place, an object, a, a movement, a color scheme, you know, and they will generalize everything they learn in order to make snap decisions under life and death pressure. And they plan ahead. So uh, like you said, bringing a coconut shell, when they're going someplace that they know is there's going to have no shelter, they are territorial, they have a den or multiple dens, and they venture out and come back, venture out and come back, and they, like rabbits, they know where the dens are. And if they're going somewhere to feed where there isn't a den, they will bring something with them. Also, uh, in My Octopus Teacher, you see the first contact with her, she holds a shell in front of her, uh, like a shield. And that's planning ahead. This thing might attack me. And so I have this shield. They, so they have this high drive to innovate. And I think that might be what observers of octopuses find most charming is that precocity. Uh, so Jennifer Mathers, she sums up by saying, although the sensory umwelt and the decentralized control systems of the octopus don't generate the same kind of mind as in vertebrates, the octopus nevertheless has one. No question, the octopus has a mind. Anyway, so despite the distance between us on the evolutionary scale and the fact that the octopus brain is dispersed through its body, their neural makeup is actually very similar. As we said, their eyes are similar. They have regions of the brain devoted to different functions like we do. We have several, we have a language center which is divided. Their their brain is organized like that, grouped. They have this overall incredible creativity to, to deceive so the hiding thing and the camouflage, these uh, astonishingly sophisticated camouflage, is all about fooling other eyes with other umwelts, when you think about it, right? Theory of mind. Exactly. So they have to understand, they have to not only learn all the things we've been talking about, but they also have to learn what fools a shark. So they have eyes that sense spectra beyond ours. Yes, I assumed that. Yeah, other creatures do. So their their camouflage is also deceiving creatures that can sense things oh, we can't. Oh, nice. Yeah, it's even beyond our our senses. Yeah. So to have a theory of mind, you have to have, I guess, the power of empathy. You have to be able to decenter from your umwelt into someone else's. Yes. So they're learning trial by error. What what fools others? Right. <laughs> So Craig Foster's one-year experience with the octopus had already come and gone by the time he decided to make this film, and the footage was buried among hundreds of hours. I think Ehrlich said there was ten, there were 10 years of video. Oh, okay. And they had to choose a, a narrative, and then they had to edit the footage. And I can't remember how long it took to make the film, but it was also years and years and years. So let's take a quick look now that we have all that background at this one scene. Okay, so Craig was born in those waters, pretty much. He became a tracker on land. He had meaningful encounters with animals of all sorts, but he never had before such a sustained friendship. And, you know, even, even compared to his time tracking, he never had such a sustained friendships with the depth of trust and physical contact that he had with that octopus. And over the years preceding and since this particular octopus, many others, I mean, even then, he was having encounters with other octopuses. <laughs> but they uh, they will reach out a tentacle. He talks about how they hold on to the den 
in case they have to pull themselves back inside and they will reach out a tentacle and uh, they're very curious about your mask and your camera or whatever. This one was special because maybe we've talked about flight distance before. Maybe she wasn't as anxious or as fearful as maybe she had a little more courage individually. I don't know. Or maybe her den was just in his perambulations. Can you call this swimming? What is the word for swimming? He says there was this moment when she let go. He was swimming up. They they are known to recognize people, as we've said. There was a moment when she saw him coming and she let go of her den and swam toward him. And then her whole body was vulnerable. And from that moment on, except for when he dropped the lens and had to find her again and, and made that big map and tracked her down, she engaged in all her natural behaviors in front of him. And that's why we have this extraordinary film. But you will notice when you watch the film, and those of you who have seen the film already, he starts talking about her the way someone who's in love talks. He says things like, the boundaries between us seem to dissolve, just the pure magnificence of her. (laughs) He confesses that he is thinking about her day and night. I want someone to say that about me. Oh, I know. Um, However, that water is so cold. Even though he learns to endure it and crave it, he can only stay in, he says this in the film, about 15 or 20 minutes at a time. Yeah. So he goes in, he encounters her sometimes. He's also encountering shrimp, right? And, and all these other creatures and other octopuses in those 15 or 20 minutes. But he, she is all he can think about. And the rest of the time, he's not in the water. So he starts researching octopuses to learn more about her. Part of what's so compelling, when somebody is obsessed, they're, they're, there's something innately dangerous about an obsession. Yes. I guess. there And when you are in, I've always said this as an animal lover and as someone who has pets, there is nothing more dangerous than loving a mortal. You know, we, we all, if, if you love it all, you live in suspense. Yes. So at one point he, does, he realizes that this bay is filled with pajama sharks, filled with them. I mean, maybe he already knew that. I'm just thinking how doubtful that is that he was like, didn't know that when he grew up there, right? Uh, sorry, I'm, I'm calling bullshit. <laughs> but in, there's a point in the film where he shows you that this very vulnerable little creature that he loves so dearly is surrounded by pajama sharks all the time. So let's remember, what can I do with this object? Everyone's out to get me. If at first you can't succeed, try again another way. So. There's a point in the film where the uh, a pajama shark seriously injures her. Okay. And I'm just going to, I don't want to spoil anything. But so I was thinking as I watched a second time, she must have outsmarted those pajama shark many times. Because remember, he's only in the water 15, 20 minutes. He's, he's there every day. Yes. But only 15 or 20 minutes at a time. So she's had shark encounters before. Right. And she's outsmarted them or she wouldn't. Right. She wouldn't still be alive. Right. So she has completely habituated to him and she's going on with her life right before his eyes. So he happens to get to witness encounters with sharks. So there's one particular spell, a scene in the movie in which a pajama shark is hunting her. The thing about pajama sharks, I realized watching it again and after researching octopuses, is that they don't see very well. They hunt by scent. Yes. So... Gosh darn it, she's really good at disguising herself. That's a visual camouflage. I would like to know if an octopus can also disguise herself by scent, because she really needs to. 
her color changes are doing, you know, and her little texture changes are very fancy, but they're not doing her any good with a pajama shark. Right. Okay. She needs to get away. She needs to get into a crevice that, and they're very good at sticking their noses in crevices. So here she is. Remember, what can I do with this? Um, everybody's out to get me. And uh, if you first, you don't succeed, try again another way. So her first problem solving technique is to burst out of her hiding space when the shark gets near, emit a cloud of ink and race away. That's another thing we can't do. So this st shark stays hot on her trail. She shoots or jets up into the leafy tops of the kelp forest and she wraps leaves around her body really tight. But her odor is everywhere. So the shark starts snapping at little kelp. And I thought that's, that's like gobbling grape leaves, right? Stuffed grape leaves. The, the shark is snapping um, the grape leaves and he snaps one in a different direction and she shoots away again. She shoots out some ink and she swims straight up out of the water onto a rock. Yeah, so she climbs out of the water. And at that point, uh, I realized how shallow it is because Craig Foster pops up too. And you hear him panting. So you think she's safe, right? But I think you said they can only stay out of the water a certain amount of time. Yes. They're not breathing. She's holding her breath. So she has to go back in. As soon as she goes back in, the shark is there. So now she's just swimming for her life. And so she's swimming and the shark is behind her and Craig Foster is behind the shark with his camera. And remember, at this point, this octopus is his true love. So we'll talk about that in a minute. He's videotaping uh, what might very well be her death. And she swims right down to the bottom where she must have known. She must have known all these things were there, right? Because she's explored her environment and knows, and they talked about uh, cognitive mapping. There is a pile of shells and stones. And she dives straight into that pile of shells and stones, grabs everything she can with her suckers, like a hundred shells and stones, and pulls her legs over herself to make a ball of shells and stones. And this is how the movie begins, actually. Is, uh, he has never seen anything like that before. He said on Fresh Air, the interview on Fresh Air, in an evolutionary perspective, we have a mollusk that has relinquished the shell in order to become a liquid creature, but it is capable of creating temporary armor from anything that it finds in its environment. So she makes that ball, but the shark is also intelligent and has been eating octopuses all its life, and it knows that trick. So it just bites the ball of shells. It's awful. So uh, he has a hold of the ball of shells and he's doing all that sh scary shark stuff like the crocodile and the alligator do. He's uh, twisting and thrashing. He's bashing her against the rocks. And uh, at this point, Craig has to breathe. Remember, he's free diving. So he goes up, breathes. When he comes down again, the octopus has maneuvered herself into the safest possible place imaginable. And it's on the shark's back. Oh, I forgot that. Yeah. <laughs> It's so smart. So the funny thing is, it's still, she's still clinging to all her rocks and stones. She even has an anemone, a spiny anemone. So the shark is, is go, gosh, darn it. <laughs> and it's just now it's swimming a lot slower than it was before. And it looks like, I mean, we just had the Kentucky Derby. It looks like a Derby Day hat. <laughs> you know, it's got this, this ball of pretty shells, <laughs> anemone. And the shark can't shake her off. Remember, each sucker has about a 30 pound and she doesn't weigh any 30 pounds, but she's not coming off. 
So the shark tries, now the shark is problem solving too. Well, it was problem solving the whole time. The two of them were both problem solving. Swimming through thick kelp, he's trying to scrape her off. As he passes a formation of stone and algae, she lets go. She sees her chance. She drops the shells and she swims in the opposite direction and the shark just turns. But she is right near a tiny crevasse and she pours herself into it and the shark moves on. In the Fresh Air interview, the interviewer asks Craig Foster how he handled these threats to his friend's life. And we know when we're watching this film how dearly he loves her. He says he was terrified for her. I did wonder how is how is he handling this because you you know how damaged he is at the beginning of the film and he has just recklessly fallen in love. So not only are you worried about her, you're worried about him. He says about a third of the octopuses in the sea are missing limbs. It's something that happens a lot. You don't you don't know that when you're watching the film. That happens a lot. He also says that death by predation is quite merciful. So he has a slightly different perspective on on death by predation that we do. And also that daily diving, remember, you know, in the film, you're only focused on his relationship with her, but he has a relationship with all of the creatures, you know, with the entire ecosystem. So uh, he says in this interview that he developed a profound empathy for their struggles too, for the shark struggles. So he has an empathy for the entire ecosystem. He has that agape kind of love, love for all the creatures. And uh, also people ask him, why didn't you save her? Not, not that she dies in this scene. Uh, she, she got away. And she, yeah, um, but he could have interfered. I've always had that when you're watching like um, National Geographic or something. I'm like, do something. <laughs> you know? But he says it's hard for, for you to come in here into this kelp forest, this ecosystem, and interfere with something that's kept its balance for millions of years. It just doesn't seem right. So that's his perspective. The ending of the movie, um, if you're, those of you who are really sensitive, I, I have friends who won't watch it because uh, there's some harrowing scenes. The end reminded me of Charlotte's Web. Yeah, it's, it's poignant. It's uplifting. His, his dear, sweet, unnamed octopus gets to live a full and complete octopus life. And if you're wondering how somebody could love her so much and then not protect her from a, a shark, you know, he, he lets her figure this out. The truth is, it's been like 10 years, and uh, I saw video interviews with him. He cannot discuss the loss of her because she only had a, a lifespan of one year. He doesn't like to talk about it, and he gets emotional. His, his, yeah, he gets, he gets choked up. He, uh, it's visibly painful for him. He says uh, that he was there for 80% of her life. You know, what makes it is, for me, I think, is, is that reckless love of his. I think that. That reckless love that we see in this movie is really an integral part of the human condition that maybe is something that separates us from animals and that we have to understand death and that that, that love will be taken away from us in a significant manner that maybe other animals don't maybe waste their time on. We hope that instead of wasting your time pondering loss, death, and heartache, you're spending it with us. Be sure to join us next week when we delve into animal dreams. Check out our website at www.thisanimallife.com, join our Facebook page, or email us, thisanimallife at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. And while you're here, go ahead and subscribe. Give us five stars, write a review, 
It would increase our visibility on these platforms so more people can join us in exploring this animal life. Our music is by incredible composer and performer Chip Salerno. Find more of Chip's music on soundcloud.com.